0: Hello, my fellow pod Americans. See, I could come up with something other than my fellow Americans, and it only took me one and a half seasons to do it. My name is Duncan, and this is Better Than Washington, the podcast that reviews presidents in a comparison-based context. We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who was Thomas F. Wilson. Not to disrespect the actor who played Biff Tannen in Back to the Future, but when you compare him to his former roommates Andrew Dice Clay and Yakov Smirnov, he was definitely the middlemost comedian. Anyways, today we are continuing our discussion about John Adams Jr., the second president of the United States. Today is part one of our talk about his second year in office. March 4th, 1798 to March 3rd, 1799, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't know how many parts this discussion is going to be. Everything that could happen to a president happened in 1798 to 1799, so this is probably gonna be a three or maybe even a four part episode. But nonetheless, once we have finished our discussion, we will be able to see for this year if John Adams Jr. was better than Washington. Because of how much stuff we have to talk about this year, I'm going to start with some of the easiest stuff to talk about, which just so happens to be the first thing we talk about every episode so far, the economy. On July 9th, 1798, Congress imposed a $2 million new tax on real property, which at the time included land, buildings upon that land, and anyone who was kept in slavery within the land being assessed. The intention of this money was to fund a certain amount of naval buildup, which was going to be very important very soon. But this tax was incredibly unpopular and in a way that's even more sympathetic than, say, the Whiskey Rebellion had been. You see, while I don't have the exact numbers of what the total tax across all states or the entire nation would have been, I do happen to know, or at least have been told from my sources, that the Pennsylvania portion of the tax burden alone would have been $237,177.72 which, when you adjust for today's inflation, would be comparable to $5,376,066.89, which is a lot to ask from a single state, especially at that time. I am led to believe, this is speculation, so have that grain of salt ready, I am led to believe that the reason that tax burden was so high was because, at the time, Pennsylvania was a frontier state meaning that people who were looking to build farms for themselves and own their own property were flooding out there to get land for cheap. And unsurprisingly, Pennsylvania had been a victim of all of the land speculation that led to the most recent panic of 1796 and 1797. Go figure. So not only would Pennsylvania pay a steep price for this tax burden, but the specific residents of Pennsylvania who would have paid that price A large portion of them were German-American immigrants, and these German-American immigrants didn't always have the best English literacy, or even spoke English in some cases. As a result of that, they were essentially taken advantage of, or at least they felt like they were being taken advantage of. There are even accounts of tax assessors counting windows on the houses of the German immigrants as if the windows were part of the taxable property, like a separate piece of property to be taxed in addition to the land, house, and enslaved peoples. This wasn't actually part of the tax code, which leaves you to wonder why the assessors counted them to begin with. Maybe it was just part of a targeted harassment campaign. Maybe it didn't actually happen and the immigrants just thought they were counting the windows. But regardless, the German-American immigrants were basically in a disadvantaged situation to overcome the tax burden, or at least they were led to believe that. And on top of that, for the same number of concerns, including some other real harassment and some other perceived misunderstandings, the German-American immigrants of Pennsylvania were also prone to believe in conspiracy theories which means that all of the stuff the Federalists were doing were being sold to them by Democrat-Republican newspapers and elected officials as dictatorial, aristocratic, monarchical, basically everything that America stood against. And the Germans were buying that up. As a result, the German-American citizens of the Montgomery, Leahy, Bucks, and Berks counties were being hit hard by the tax and were concerned about their ability to survive the tax, so they started protesting. And eventually those protests would snowball into riots and a full-fledged rebellion under the advisement of a itinerant auctioneer named John Freeze. But that's gonna happen in about a year's time. So it's a little too early to start talking about Fry's Rebellion or Freeze Rebellion. So, for now, all you need to know is that the tax that Congress approved and I assume Adams chose not to veto was creating another insurrectionist plot. While part of that was probably due to unfound conspiracy theories from the Democrat Republicans, a lot of it was also due to the fact that the federal government was not willing to work alongside their immigrant populations to make sure that the tax was understood and could be survived fairly. Like, if you were an English American immigrant or somebody who was born in the United States to begin with, you would be in a position to better ask for assistance from your neighbors or people smarter than you or to even get the education needed to understand how the tax would actually work and therefore understand how to balance your budget, how to uh, strategically plan finances, and just generally would have better chances at survival. That being said, while the actual rebellion itself won't happen until next year, John Fries has already gotten involved at this point. By February of 1799, the end of the period we're looking at, John Fries will already, or Fries, will already be organizing meetings to talk about protest options with the German-American immigrants of the counties he serves. And that's really it for economics this year. The American shipping industry continues to be plagued by French privateers who were mad at the United States for signing the Jay Treaty, and the economic support the port cities those ships sailed from needed in result of the Panic of 1796 and 1797 still was non-existent. Even though not a lot is happening, what is and is not happening seems strategically designed to screw over the early United States from an economic security standpoint. Not a great start for the Adams presidency this year. We're actually going to end up giving Adams a negative one for economy this year. Hey, look at that. We're 10 minutes in and we already have our first score. Told you I was going to talk about the easy stuff first. But you know what's not easy? International diplomacy. Which leads us to our next score, diplomacy. Last year, we talked about the beginnings of what would become known as the XYZ affair. To recap, the French were mad at the Americans for a lot of reasons, and the United States didn't want to fight a war with France, especially when it was still paying off debts from the Northwest Indian War and overseeing Indian removal policies in that area, because genocide is expensive, which you think would make the United States stop pursuing it, but here we are. In order to avoid that conflict with France, Adams had appointed Federalists John Marshall, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, and Elbridge Gerry to go to France in an attempt to negotiate with the French Secretary of State, Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand. The problem was that Talleyrand, for reasons that would be politically and financially convenient, refused to publicly meet with them. Instead, he had a trio of cronies who met with them jean Catinrad Hottinger, Pierre Bellamy, and Lucien Hotwall. These three demanded bribes, loans, and formal apologies from the commissioners sent to France in order to even secure a seat at the table for Talleyrand to seriously consider peace negotiations with the United States. Elbridge Gerry, who was the least federalist and most interested in at least trying to do his job, was trying to find a way to negotiate with these three in order to get a path established to the formal negotiating table. And I don't know if he would have actually gone for the bribes or not, but, you know, if you're trying to prevent a war, you gotta do what you gotta do. Meanwhile, Marshall and Pinckney just completely shut out these guys and refused to do business with them, thereby terminating the desperately needed peace negotiations before they even began because they were too offended at the notion that the United States had to pay money that technically they already owed to France. Where we pick up from March to October of 1798 is a hostile stalemate. Eventually, Talleyrand, sensing the tension in the air and how serious the United States is about not just bending the knee to France, Besides that it's probably a good idea to at least try and speed up this negotiation for the negotiation process. Talleyrand, during the March meeting with the commissioners from the United States, dropped the demand for a loan and tried to get them to the table to at least talk about ways that the United States could start repaying loans and proving itself to France again in order for France to stop sending privateers against American merchant ships but by this point, the stalemate had become a full impasse. It's also worth noting that March is when the letters that Elbridge Gerry, John Marshall, and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney were mailing back to the United States finally made it to President John Adams' desk, meaning that Adams has finally realized just how bad the negotiations are going. Eventually, Marshall and Pinckney, again, the pearl-clutching stepmoms who were too ashamed of the notion of bending their morals in the name of peace to try and do their job as peace negotiators, decided that they were no longer willing to spend one more minute in France and attempted to leave in March. They were delayed until April. Talleyrand wanted to create some diplomatic advantage for himself by making it seem like the Americans were the obstinate ones, which... I mean, they were both the obstinate ones, but regardless. So his grand plan was to not give Marshall and Pinckney their passports back. He tried to force them to promise to return to France for future negotiations in order to receive the passports, so that way if Marshall and Pinckney did not return, Talleyrand could accuse them of breaking off the negotiation. But unfortunately for Talleyrand, Marshall and Pinckney were more stubborn about not giving him anything than he was about keeping them in France. Eventually, Talleyrand got as sick of Marshall and Pinckney as they were sick of him, and thus relented, gave them the passports, and let them leave in April of 1798. Jerry, on the other hand, remembered that he had a specific job to do, stop a war from happening. It also helps that Talleyrand sensed that Jerry was the only person willing to maybe consider his demands and therefore had isolated him and buttered him up as, like, the last hope for peace. Jerry decided that he wanted to stay and was even told by Talleyrand that his departure would lead to the French government declaring war against the United States, uh, the French government being the directory of the French Revolution at the time. So despite wanting to initially present a united front, Jerry was persuaded to stay in France for several more months, hence why this discussion lasts until October. But he refused to continue substantive negotiations during that time, trying to instead work as a placeholder until the United States sent some more authoritative negotiators to pick up where he, Marshall, and Pinckney left off. Jerry also was trying to write to the President of the United States in order to secure his departure from France. So eventually, Jerry got his wish when Talleyrand sent negotiators to The Hague in the Netherlands to negotiate with the Dutch-American ambassador, William Vans Murray. So once that happened, Jerry knew he was no longer necessary and decided to finally return to the United States, doing so in October. So that's what was happening in Europe, but what was happening in Philadelphia, which was the capital of the United States at the time? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Adams finally received the letters from the commission around March and was kind of dealing with a heated debacle because the Federalists had been pushing for war this entire time while the Democrat-Republicans had been pushing for complete and utter peace and reconciliation. Neither angle was one that Adams was interested in pursuing. So, once Congress found out that he had received those letters, in an ironic moment of bipartisanship, both the Democrat Republicans, who I'll sometimes call Jeffersonian Republicans for historical track keeping, and the Federalists demanded that Adams publish the letters. So, he chose to publish them on March 20th, but he made a very important decision he decided to hide the names of Bellamy, Hotval, and Hottengur, replacing them instead with the symbols X, Y, and Z. So when he published the letters, Congress was not made aware of who the specific miscreants were during the negotiation process, and this is also why this entire diplomatic scandal was called the XYZ Affair. Almost immediately, the Federalists came out of that debate looking like the good guys. They were the people who were trying to warn the United States about how dangerous and arrogant the French were, and their insistence that we build up the army and the navy to protect ourselves from French privateers and possibly a French invasion seemed way more sensible. The Democrat-Republicans, on the other hand, suddenly looked like malcontents who were more interested in supplicating France— than in protecting the United States. For people like Alexander Hamilton, the party boss of the Federalists, and even former President George Washington, the Democrat-Republicans now looked like people actively trying to destroy the United States. Therefore, it was very easy for Congress to suddenly authorize the acquisition of 12 frigates and other forms of military preparation, which was a natural part of Adams' desire to make the American military as strong as possible, regardless of potential threats. And then, it also led to Congress voting to nullify the 1778 Treaty of Alliance with France, and to authorize attacks on French warships, which was also the exact opposite of what Adams wanted, because Adams still wanted to get France to the negotiating table to figure out a way to avoid a war. But thanks to the partisan actions of the Federalists that were fueled by the XYZ letters and the XYZ affair, war was now on the horizon. Well, a kind of war. A sort of war. A war that's not really a war. We'll talk about that next episode. Of course, while the damage of the XYZ affair may have already happened, the actual scandal itself was still wrapping up a bit. So Marshall and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney finally make it home and they do so before Elbridge Jerry. Which means they have a captive audience with nobody to refute their claims until Jerry gets back home. Therefore it's incredibly easy for them to paint Jerry as the reason why the negotiations fell through. Feeding into the Federalist spheres, by which I mean Alexander Hamilton's spheres, that Jerry was too soft on Federalist party line to be a real Federalist, and therefore should have been not entrusted with the Peace Commission, despite being the person who was actually trying to do his job. As a direct result of this, Jerry decided to abandon the party and spent the rest of his career a devout Democrat-Republican. Well, not really a devout Democrat-Republican, more like a centrist Democrat-Republican. And in turn, when he becomes governor of Massachusetts and is presented with a bill to prevent the Federalists from taking over the state in the next election, Jerry signs a law that allows the Democrat-Republicans to redraw district voting lines into insane, crazy shapes, one of which looked like a salamander. And thus, Elbridge Jerry invents gerrymandering one of the greatest scourges of American politics to this date. And of course, it also is given the name because of that one weird, funky-looking district. It was Jerry's Salamander. It was a gerrymander. Of course, no dramatic story worth its salt is interesting if you only tell one side of it. So how did Europe react to the XYZ affair? Talleyrand, for starters, was in a lot of trouble, because the French Directory, the government of France at the time, had completely trusted him to take the negotiation process seriously, even though it was their demand to receive the formal apology from the United States, the rest of the shenanigans that went down were apparently unauthorized. So, Talleyrand had to be summoned to court and give an explanation. At which point, Talleyrand completely denied knowing anything about the negotiations, knowing anything about who X, Y, and Z were, despite being the person who hired Hotengur, Bellamy, and Hotball. Also worth noting that Jerry, in order to maintain some semblance of a diplomatic relationship that could one day turn into a real peace negotiation, Jerry also helped Talleyrand fake an investigation into determining who X, Y, and Z were. In exchange, Talleyrand confessed to Jerry that Hottengur, Bellamy, and Hotval were in fact his cronies, and they weren't just people trying to take advantage of the commissioners. Actually, the fact that there was a doubt about Hotval, Bellamy, and Hottengur being cronies of Talleyrand at all kind of makes Marshall and Pinkney seem a little bit more sympathetic, because if they thought that these were just scam artists taking them for a ride, it makes more sense why they were not willing to pay money or pursue serious conversation. Regardless, this confession helped convince Jerry to continue fighting for peace with the French, which Adams attributes to keeping the quasi-war as small as it was and softening French policy towards peace. Talleyrand himself was apparently shocked by how willing the United States was to fight France. So, after two years of a conflict that's kind of like a war but sort of not a war, but in the weird space where it is both a war and not a war, Talleyrand will eventually start fighting for peace legitimately, no questions asked, no bribes required. This will lead to him working extensively with William Vans Murray to make the Convention of 1800 happen. What that convention is and the weird conflict that is kind of like war but not really a war will make more sense in a future episode. So that is obviously the biggest diplomatic event of the year and it's also the worst diplomatic event possibly in the United States history. Marshall, Pinckney, and Jerry—well, specifically Marshall and Pinckney— really screwed the pooch by refusing to deal with the French because they were too humiliated, or they felt that American interests weren't being respected enough, or they thought that they were going to look tough by turning down people obviously trying to take advantage of them. I'm not saying that their opinions were wrong. What I am saying is that if your job is to pursue peace, especially on this podcast where the only way to get a positive 3 in a war score is to not have a war happen, we really want to see you fight tooth and nail for peace. And if you're not willing to compromise on your morals to do that, then you need to find a way to create avenues of peace negotiations, no matter how far outside the box you have to think. And instead, Marshall and Pinckney sat in a corner and pouted. We could also be mad at Jerry for not thinking outside the box, because even though he was willing to work with Talleyrand, he was still running into the same kind of brick wall that everybody else was, because even Jerry knew he would not be able to get France the money it wanted. It was a complete failure, and since we're only judging American presidents here, we kind of only have the Americans to put the blame on. We can be mad at the French too, but Adams doesn't get to control the French, so Adams isn't going to be affected in his score by what the French do. It is worth noting that this is not the only diplomatic event of the year, however. On October 2nd, while Elbridge Gerry was finishing his boat ride back to the States, the Treaty of Teleco is signed into law between the United States and the 39 chiefs and warriors of the Overhill Cherokee Nation. This was signed near the Cherokee City of Great Teleco and the U.S.'s Telico blockhouse settlement in what is now modern-day Tennessee. This was actually the only treaty that the Adams presidency would pursue with any Native American culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there was an attitude of hostility either, at least compared to other actions the United States would pursue against the indigenous Americans of the United States. Rather, it was more like they were wrapping up all the other peace treaties and settlements that the Washington presidency had overseen, And thus, the Treaty of Telco was their only new opportunity for a new treaty. The treaty declared that perpetual peace between the Cherokee and the United States would be maintained, and the current borders between the United States and the overhill Cherokee lands would also be maintained. But the Cherokee had to not secede, the other one. The Cherokee had to give up the lands that would become Eastern Tennessee, and the U.S. promised them $5,000 upfront and $1,000 annually in exchange for that land. The Overhill Cherokee Nation and the United States also agreed to pay for horses for either group of people stole from each other, and they maintained that the Kentucky Road, which ran through a corner of the Overhill Cherokee territory, would be open to use for free trade between both the United States and the Cherokee. And in addition to all that, the Overhill Cherokee were saddled with a U.S. Indian agent who would live among them to help enforce the treaty, which meant that the Overhill Cherokee had to give up some land for that agent's, quote, temporary use. We have talked about the crappiness that these peace treaties are in a previous season, but we also talked about in that season how, because this is a comparison based context, There's an unfair fairness we have to pay to them, where, because they're not the worst examples of genocide, in so much at least that they're a form of cultural destruction that still leaves the people of the culture alive, they're not as bad as they could have been and therefore aren't as much a penalty as maybe they should be. But honestly, like, by the same token, I should be giving every president up until Abraham Lincoln a negative three for civil rights because slavery still exists. I gotta do some things to keep the podcast unpredictable and interesting. But regardless, if you hate this treaty, you're right. Then, on November 28th of 1798, the United States established a trade route with the civilization that would eventually become Uruguay. I say that in such a weird way because I couldn't quite get a clear answer on what the name for Uruguay was at the time, but still... New trade route, which means new friends, so less people to go to war with. That's neat. And then on January 30th, a perhaps more controversial approach to diplomacy that I'm still going to somewhat agree with happens when Adams signs the Logan Act into law. Let's cycle back to the tail end of 1798. The XYZ affair has ended in disaster, and the only avenues to peace with France appear to be the dedication of Elbridge Gerry, the professionalism of William Van Murray, and the desperate survival instinct of Talleyrand, who knows that if he screws up again, the French Directory are going to send him to the guillotine, or at least that's the impression that I get from Talleyrand's desperate need to suddenly negotiate with the United States. During this time, a Pennsylvania state senator, so not even a person associated with the federal government, named Dr. George Logan, is very concerned, for you see, Dr. George Logan is a pacifist, and his desperate, desperate need for peace led him to buy a boat ticket to France, where he attempted to negotiate as a private citizen of the United States. Unsurprisingly, Logan was also a Democrat-Republican, which meant that he had these rose-colored glasses about the French commitment to peace, liberty, and justice. So, as a result, Logan, a political dissident, was trying to overturn Federalist policy, which was seen as a massive violation of the fair balance of power in the nation. And actually, in a shocking turn of events for myself, I agree with the Federalists. The Federalists are going to do a lot of really cruel stuff this year that is strictly unconstitutional. But in this one instance, the peaceful transition of power means that you have to be willing to let the government hold onto a policy. And if you disagree with that policy, you change the policy by voting for new people in office. So what Logan was doing where... He was basically sabotaging the peace efforts and war efforts of the nation in pursuit of his version of peace as one member of the United States, essentially, violates the collective will of the United States as well as the efficiency of the government. If Logan went about this a different way than he did, there's a very real possibility that he could have butterfly affected himself into creating more American casualties. It'd be like, um, It'd be like an action movie where somebody who doesn't have any actual flying experience still decides to, like, take control of a plane in order to prevent it from crashing. Like, in real life, that dude would have hit the side of a mountain real quick. Even though Logan appeared to have some success, because Talleyrand spoke to him for crying out loud, Logan could only offer up ways that the French could improve their relationship with the United States, but ironically, The Directory had already approved some of the actions that Logan was promoting. Logan, another example of why you as a private citizen shouldn't take on the entire responsibility of a government for yourself because you think you know what the right thing to do is. The government was already doing that, and Logan, by doubling it down and saying, oh, here's what you can do, this thing you're already doing, it just looks bad, and it makes... I'm surprised the French didn't, like, double back and decide to pull out some of these measures because Logan kind of made the United States look way too disorganized to effectively keep any of the promises they would have made at the peace talks table. Eventually, Logan made it back home, and the Federalists needed to act because they didn't want even more Dr. George Logans to run amok and ruin their plans for how to get themselves out of a conflict with France. Thus, the Logan Act was passed and, as I said, signed into law on January 30th, 1799. The Logan Act was actually Pickering's idea first as a way to prevent private citizens from undoing public policy. Again, I agree with this. Logan should not have tried to represent America in that capacity. Now, the ban on ex post facto laws that we're going to talk about in a later episode regarding this year meant that Logan didn't face any punishment from the law, and, you know, that's fair. It wasn't illegal what he did at the time, it was just really stupid. But going forward, anyone else who tried what he did could expect a hefty fine and a maximum of three years in federal prison. Where does that leave our score for diplomacy? Well, there were technically some successes, so it feels weird to just go for the full negative three, When you're looking at war with one of the major superpowers of the world at the time, which France was, getting to make new friends is really important, because those new friends can make sure that you're financially secure enough to survive that conflict. Setting up trade with what was going to become Uruguay was a pretty big deal, bigger than it might seem on the surface. The Treaty of Telico was another way to prevent more deaths for the Native Americans that were living out of the frontiers of the United States. Again, yes, it's still a form of genocide, and yes, it's still very unfair, but compared to the Northwest Indian War we talked about last season or anything like that, it's definitely a small improvement, and we take those technicalities here. And then, of course, the Logan Act was also good because it made sure that no random whack job on the street could just run to another nation and ruin everything for everyone. I mean, could you imagine if Tucker Carlson just, like, flew to Russia and threatened to nuke Russia because he wanted to end the war in Ukraine? I know there's, like, 18 ridiculous things I said in that sentence, but still, imagine if he could just do that and there was no law stopping him from doing that. That would be really bad and the consequences could be very real. So yes, some good things happened this year. Even if they're questionably good, they're still good. But we cannot, and I truly mean we cannot, understate just how bad the XYZ affair was. France was the largest military at least in terms of land-based militaries in the world. France's financial wealth, even after the near decade of chaos that was the French Revolution and the French Revolutionary Wars, was strong enough to afford privateers. That's an important thing to keep in mind here, is that these aren't even official French naval forces that are attacking United States ships. These are pirates hired by the government to attack American ships. And at any point in time, they could have flipped the switch to go full aggro on the United States. I mean, they already declared war with literally the entire continent of Europe, and at this point in history, they are winning that war. So to also attack the United States could have been the death of the nation only eight years into its existence. Actually, nine years into this existence at this point, so pardon me for that. John Adams is getting a negative 2 for diplomacy this year, which means between economics and diplomacy, we're already looking at a negative 3. That's a yikes, dog. But like I said, this year is an intense one, and it is going to take multiple parts to get through, so it's a little premature to say that this is the worst year on record yet, because we still have war, civil rights, integrity, and bipartisanship to look at, to see if John Adams truly is worse than Washington. Wait, that's not the name of the podcast. To see if John Adams is better than Washington. Maybe we should cool down with some interesting history facts. During March of 1798, the Irish Rebellion of 1798 began when the Irish militia arrested the leaders of the Society of United Irishmen. Then on April 26, France, that superpower I was just talking about, managed to annex Geneva. Then on June 4th, Giacomo Casanova, the Italian adventurer and writer who is the namesake of the modern-day phrase Casanova, passed away at the age of 73. And on June 13th, Mission San Luis Rey de Francisca was founded in what is now Oceanside, California. Man, splitting up this episode, or rather this year's discussion into three parts, actually means I don't have as many interesting history facts to end with. Which is probably good for me as an editor, but probably bad for you as an audience. I apologize, I'll see if I can sneak some more history facts in somewhere. Wait, no, I have a few, because there's also some interesting history facts that have no assigned date. One of those was that at some point in 1798, Edward Jenner published his article that described the possibility of a smallpox vaccine, and he publishes it in London. This is going to be the first step in the long fight to make smallpox less deadly than it had been throughout the course of human history thus far. So that's worth remembering too. And as dark as this year might seem for the United States, it's still nice to know that the human race as a whole is going to benefit from the passionate pursuit of justice that is Edward Jenner. And yes, healthcare is justice. That's it for this episode. My fellow Pod Americans, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a Fair Use Attribution License. You can find that song and the other works of Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like, and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you're using right now. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at ThanWashington, with a capital T and a capital W. No promises that I ever post, but it technically exists. If you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better hyphen than hyphen Washington. Also, if you ever want to fact check me, I do my preliminary research on Wikipedia to see what happened and then use resources I find online through Google search to corroborate select claims. It's from that I develop my opinion, which you're never obligated to agree with, but I still hope the information is useful to you. Resources online I found for this episode include some articles that are mostly about the Fry's Rebellion, but also talk about the property tax that inspired the rebellion from www.macungi.org and from britannica.com. I also looked at the history.state.gov article talking about the XYZ affair in its entirety. Those links will be in the show notes of this episode on whichever podcast platform you're listening to right now. I hope you have a great day everyone, and I hope you're enjoying the new nickname because, you know, I want everybody who listens to this podcast to be whatever they want to be. If that means you're an American, I want you to be an American. If that means you don't want to be an American but want to learn more about American history, I want you to do that too. So I figure Pod American's a fun name that I can finally throw out without feeling guilty about making people feel like they have to be Americans to listen to this show. Regardless, have a great day, everyone. My Podmericans, farewell for now.